you have your Bible this morning, uh, please open to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 5 uh, of chapter 2 today. Uh, a couple of years ago, we took our boys to the zoo for the very first time. Um, prior to that, we would just take them to the pet shop and tell them that was the zoo. But no, I'm kidding. That's, uh, but, but the zoo is one of those experiences that uh, you're, you're hoping that you go, yes, for the entertainment, but also hoping that your children will kind of you know, come away with a greater uh, appreciation of just the magnificence of of nature and creation. And so, um, you know, I wanted to use this as kind of a a learning opportunity, um, but that's not always what you get in these instances. At the end of the day, I asked Chandler uh, what his favorite part of the zoo was. I thought, you know, maybe it was when the tiger, you know, came right up to the glass or the baby gibbon that was, you know, just born the month before and was still uh, being swung around on its mom's back. Um, it was the dolphin show. And he said, Dad, I liked the flamingo. He, 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 was, he was standing on one leg, and, and then he pooped. And then the other flamingo came over and ate the poop. And I'm like, oh, like, this is not what I wanted you to come away with, but... Uh, if you've ever been at the zoo, one of the things you notice is that while you're as close as you'll ever get to some of these amazing creatures, uh, of course, there's always a barrier there. You know, whether it's thick paned glass or the deep ravine between uh, the fence and the enclosure, or, you know, some animals, the snakes, are, are kept in their own little glass boxes. Uh, and, and the reason for that is, is obvious. Many of these animals, though amazing, are dangerous. Whether they're ferocious predators or just several hundred or thousands of pounds, some of these animals are just too big to come close. Sometimes things are too big to get too close to. And this is the issue that we wrestle with as we come to the second chapter in Hebrews this morning. Uh, Last week, we began this letter with kind of this flying leap uh, of a cannonball into the deep end of the pool as as the author of Hebrews launches into the greatness, the the, the bigness of Jesus. And for this audience of Jewish Christians struggling with their faith and struggling with spiritual weariness, uh, the the, the weariness that came with this struggle of faith, uh, what they needed in this instance and through this letter is a bigger picture of Jesus. But this, of course, isn't just something that speaks into their world. It shapes our understanding of Jesus as well. That Jesus is greater than, that Jesus is better than anything else or anyone else. And so chapter 1 primarily focuses on this idea that Jesus is greater than angels. Of course, we recognize that to be true. No argument on our part. But it also uses this as an opportunity to show us that Jesus is God's ultimate self-revelation. That the primary way that God has made himself known to us is through the person and work of Jesus. Last week we came across that that phrase that says that Jesus is the exact representation of his Father. And as that, Jesus is, as we saw last week, the greatest prophet, the greatest priest, the greatest king. And as such, he holds a unique identity and authority and power. But wrapped up in all of this majesty and grandeur and magnificence of Jesus can be a problem. And it's this problem, it's this dilemma that Hebrews 2 addresses this morning. It's the question of, yes, we need a bigger Jesus, but is it it possible that Jesus can be too big? Read with me in chapter 2, verse 5. He says, It is not to the angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. 
But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. Now, if you were to read through the entirety of this book of Hebrews, this letter, you would see and find that it is chock full of references to the Old Testament. And the author, one of these references that the author uses to capture this dilemma that comes with a big Jesus comes this morning from Psalm 8. Psalm 8 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You see, the the psalmist, he goes out one night and and he just looks up at the night sky and he is overwhelmed by what he sees. The night sky is this huge expanse, the the moon, all the, the stars sprinkled by the hand of God throughout the galaxy, it's beyond his comprehension. And that's only what he could see with the naked eye. Uh, Advances in technology have made this even more incredible. There's a YouTuber I watch from time to time. His name is uh, Mark Rober. And he's a former engineer that actually worked on the Mars rover. He worked at NASA for a while. And now he uh, produces these really uh, well-done videos. Um, But he showed one recently that uh, talked about the expanses of space. 20 years ago, uh, the astronomers pointed the Hubble telescope at the darkest part of the night sky for 10 days. And for 10 days, photons entered this telescope. And at the end of these 10 days, this was the resulting image. I know it doesn't look like much, uh, but Mark goes on to say about this picture, he says, every speck, spiral, and smudge that you see in this image is a galaxy with hundreds of billions of stars, just like our own galaxy, the Milky Way. He says even more mind-blowing is that this portion of the night sky is what you would see if you held a dime up at arm's length and looked through just the eye of Roosevelt. That's the amount of space that is captured in just this picture. He says there are more stars in the sky than there are grains of sand on every playground, beach, ocean floor, and deserts on our planet. Last week we were told in Hebrews chapter 1 that everything was created through Jesus and by Jesus. And so when you try to capture something like that, and and I'm not even sure that you can fathom it, you are struck by the immeasurable, incalculable greatness of Jesus that the psalmist was experiencing. And in the midst of this unfathomable reaches of what God has created, it's easy to ask the question, what are we? that God would care for us? Who are we that that God would even give us second thought, let let alone love us? And sometimes confronted with a question like this, it's easy to think that he doesn't love us. Verse 8 again says, In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. In other words, the author is saying, we have all of these promises from God, and yet we don't see them coming to fruition, at least not yet. And so sometimes in our lives, we face injustice, and we think, God, where are you in the midst of my unfair circumstances? Or our health is failing and wondering why God isn't bringing the healing. Or we're doing the right things, and all it has brought is more difficulty and hardship. 
And so it's easy sometimes to think that if Jesus is a greater prophet and priest and king, and he has this unique identity and power and authority, then where are his promises when I need them? Maybe the problem is that Jesus is so big that the things that we deal with are just too trivial for him to notice. Maybe he's too big to get close. But of course, that's not the whole story. He says, yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. But verse 9, he says, but we do see Jesus. In other words, when life is tough, when we are spiritually weary, when we're not sure how to push through, trusting on the promises of God yet to be revealed, when we don't see life going right, we can still see Jesus. Verse 9 says, But we do see Jesus, who is made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, the truth that Hebrews presents us with, this, this paradox, is that yes, Jesus is big, but he is not far off. Jesus is big, but Jesus is also close. Not only do we worship a big Jesus, we worship a close Jesus. Jesus has come near. And the dilemma of Psalm 8, where we look at the grandeur of God as evident from the works of his hands as we marvel at his majesty to the point where we wonder how he could care for us, is answered in Jesus Christ. Jesus, who came down and subjected himself to be made lower even than those who he created so that he might experience, we might experience, victory, and hope. And as we see Jesus come close, we experience his power and his presence and his promises in a number of ways that we see this morning. The first one we see is this, that Jesus is our hero. Now I know that saying Jesus is our hero sounds like something uh, a middle schooler would come home with a shirt, you know, from like a youth conference, and I get it, but just stick with me for just a moment. Verse 10 says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should, be made, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Jesus is the pioneer uh, of our salvation. Uh, some other translations will call it author. Uh, Greek is the word archagon, which I bring up for no other reason than the fact that it sounds really cool. Jesus is our archagon. Uh, but what this means is Jesus is our leader, he's our, our champion, he's our hero. A, a champion is one who would go out as a representative for battle. Uh, we see this in the story of David and Goliath, the, the Philistine armies and the armies of Israel fighting against each other, and they said, why is everybody involved in this conflict? You send out your best fighter, and we'll send out our best fighter, and whoever wins will be the decider of this battle. And so Jesus charges into battle for us before us, in front of us, securing our salvation. What does this mean for us, though? Again, I'm going to sound uh, really nerdy here for a second, but just stick with me. Uh, when I grew up, one of the movies that I grew up on, the superhero movies that are out today didn't exist. So for me, some of the earliest superhero movies were the X-Men movies. And I watched them not long ago. They don't hold up, so don't bother wasting your time these days. But uh, and in the final battle of the third movie, uh, one of the villains, uh, all, of the, all of them are charging into battle, and the main villain stops one of his guys, he puts his hands on his chest, and he holds him back. And he says, in chess, the pawns go first. 
In other words, let the lesser ones charge into battle. Let them take the front lines. Let them take the brunt of the fighting, and then we'll go in afterwards. But that's not the way heroes do things. Heroes surge into battle, leading the charge. And this is what Jesus has done for us. That Jesus didn't leave us to to fight through and to figure out how to come back to God on our own. He led the charge through his suffering and his sacrifice. And when you look at where we started this series, with this letter being written to those who are, are, are spiritually weary, who are too weak to charge off into battle, what we need when we are weary is a champion, is a hero. The one who goes before us in fighting our battles and leading the charge and showing us the way to victory. What we need is a Jesus who is big, but a Jesus who is also close. Jesus is our hero. We also see that Jesus, because of his closeness, is our liberator. When we talk about the things that Jesus has done for us, we often don't think about freedom. We talk about how Jesus has brought healing and salvation and life and restoration, but we often don't talk about freedom, which is weird because as Americans, freedom is kind of at the top of our values. Galatians 5.1 says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. By coming down, by, by coming near, Jesus has shared in our experience and brought freedom from our fears and from our enemy. Verse 14 says, Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. It's no secret that death can be a scary reality. I mean, few people welcome death. Some do, maybe after a long life that is well lived, but for the most part, we pretty much avoid death at all costs. But despite all of the medicines and treatments and healthy lifestyles and money and fame and power, death comes for all of us. But though death is an unavoidable reality, it doesn't have to be a fearful reality. Through his resurrection, Jesus has brought freedom. He has liberated us from the fear of death. His resurrection shows us that death does not have the final say over us. And so Jesus' presence, his closeness to us, brings us freedom from fear. One of my mentors and friends, a fellow preacher named Mark Christian, tells this, told the story of when his son was real little. He had the fear that many kids do. There were monsters in his room. They're in the closet. They're under his bed. And so night after night, he tried to explain to him that this is not the reality, that he doesn't have to be afraid of this until finally he just said, you know, I'm going to leave my shoes right here by your bed. And as long as the monsters see my shoes, they'll think I'm in the room and they'll be too afraid to come out and bother you. In the same way, Christ's presence brings freedom from fear. When Jesus is close, we have nothing to be afraid of. Finally, we see that Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our high priest. And as our, Jesus as our high priest is, again, this theme that we come back to over and over again through Hebrews. This is the third time we've come to it in three weeks. But a high priest is, again, a mediator or, or a bridge uh, that bridges the gap between man and God. We were at the park recently, and 
my son Chandler started doing what I think every kid tries to do at some point. He's chasing all the squirrels around, trying to give them acorns. Uh, and of course, they're faster than he is, and they can climb trees and just shoot in and out of bushes. And so he's frustrated, and he comes and he says, Dad, why won't the squirrels eat this nut? Uh, he said, well, buddy, you're so much bigger than they are, and even though you're trying to help them, they're too afraid to get too close to you. You see, the high priest's job was to bridge this tension between God's bigness and his closeness. He was God's representative to people and people's representative before God. He represented the holiness of God, but he lived out the human struggle as well. Except often, as is the problem, because he is human, because he is fallen, there are two shortcomings of these earthly high priests in this system. One, they would either become corrupt, uh, like we see with Aaron and the golden calf, that rather than be a, a bridge, he caved before the, the wills and the inclinations of these people. Or they become hypocritical, which is the, the complaint that Jesus leveled against, against them, uh, against the religious leaders in his day. But Jesus, we find, is the perfect balance, the perfect high priest. The perfect mediator, because he is God, but he also feels the weight of our broken world. Verse 16 says, For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, Jesus, though big, came close to feel what we feel, to experience what we experience, to suffer what we suffer. And, and this closeness brings compassion. That Jesus doesn't just look down from an ivory tower somewhere and just say, gee, that, that must be tough. No, he says, I've experienced it. And I've led the way to victory over it through my blood spilled for you on the cross. And if I could just boil this entire sermon down into one sentence, it would be this. That Jesus is close enough to feel your struggle. And yet he is still big enough to save you in it. And what we find is that all of these roles that we've talked about that Jesus plays are, are more than just titles, they're promises. Promises that Jesus is close, that Jesus identifies with us. Finish with verse 11. He says, Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Jesus identifies with us. As our hero, as our liberator, as our high priest, he fights for us and he frees us and he saves us. And in all of this, he calls us his own, his brothers and his sisters, his family. And so what I want you to know this morning is that if you are struggling, if you are weary, if you are in a tough spot, I want you to know this morning that you are not alone. 
that you are not alone in your fear, you are not alone in your struggle, you are not alone in your addiction or pain or hopelessness or heartache, that Jesus is close enough to feel your struggle and yet he is still big enough to save you in it. And so my hope for you this morning is for you to experience that hope. The hope of a God who is big but who is also close. The hope of a God who will come alongside of you in your struggle because he has been there before. And that we, likewise, would come alongside you as your family to pray for you and support you, to experience this with you. And during the next song, if, if you are in a difficult spot and you just want somebody to pray for you, I'll be up front. Daniel will be up front as well. Uh, you can catch one of our elders. They'll be more than happy to pray with you in the back. Maybe just catch me out after service too. We'd love to pray with you that you are not alone in this, that God has given us this community called the church to walk through life with you. Brothers and sisters, as Jesus calls us, are linked together as family. And we likewise, as your family, want to help and support you in, this, in, in these seasons, in these struggles, in this weariness. To remember and show you through the way that we live, the hands and feet of Jesus, that Jesus is our hero, that Jesus is our liberator, that Jesus is our high priest, and he is ready to pour on you his power and his presence through his promises. Jesus is big, but he's also close. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And we look at the world that you have created, that Jesus, that was made through him and, and by him. And sometimes, God, we look at the, the situations around us or, or the things you've created and, and are struck with just the greatness of who you are or the greatness of our struggle. And sometimes those things can seem to be in contradiction as we experience struggle and we experience hardship and, and weariness. We think, God, you're too big to care about this little stuff I'm dealing with. But the reality is that in Jesus, we see that you do care. That despite the great expanses of the universe around us, that all of these things that you've created, still you care about us and you love us. And in Jesus, you show us this. That Jesus has come to fight these battles before us and to free us from these struggles and to mediate, to be this representative for us to you of the struggles that we live and in his perfection took those upon himself in the cross so that we might experience salvation. God, you've never promised us an easy life, but you have promised us that you will walk beside us in it. That Jesus walked this path before us, that your Holy Spirit helps us to walk it now. And so God, always remind us that you are close. That despite your greatness and your majesty and the power that you have, still you care about us and you love us immensely, intimately, deeply, beyond what we could ever know or comprehend. So remind us in our struggles that Jesus is close. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.